Thank you, Andy. We are in part five of our series, The Mad God. We've been looking at What am I missing? Oh. <laughs> we, we've been looking at God, is God angry? Oftentimes we have this perception that the God of the Old Testament is, is angry. He's a mad God. And then the New Testament, uh, Jesus kind of you know, softens him up and, and seems nicer. So we've been examining, is that true? Is that what the Bible says? Is that what the Bible teaches? And so we've been looking at this for five weeks now. So just to recap, in part one, we went back to the Garden of Eden and we looked at the Garden of Eden where, man, here's this massive rebellion where Adam and Eve rebel. This is where it really goes off the rails and the whole human race is now in trouble. And we saw God respond to this act of rebellion by promising a Messiah, promising that he would provide salvation and clothing them. Now, he also, yes, there were consequences. They get kicked out of the garden. But we see right from the beginning that God responds to the rebellion by promising that he will provide deliverance, that he is going to uh, deliver us from the curse that came in the garden. Then in part two, we went and looked at the perfect sacrifice. We talked about the fact that, you know, that there's the teaching of the perfect sacrifice that was part of the sacrificial system in Israel, and that we have oftentimes in our modern-day culture imported that idea into church where we come in and we're coming into the presence of God and the house of God, kind of like the temple, and that now we are supposed to bring this perfect sacrifice and that God expects us to bring our best. And so there's almost this pressure of, you know, we've got to look our best, and how that has oftentimes translated culturally into, man, we fake it. You know, we dress up, and we might have had a fight in the car on the way here, but then we come, and we're on our best behavior because God wants our best. So we examined, is that what the Old Testament was teaching? And we saw that it was not, that the teaching of the perfect sacrifice is not to teach us about our own efforts, and that, that we're supposed to have a superiority of our own efforts, but instead it was to point to the fact that we needed Jesus, and that Jesus is the perfect sacrifice, that Jesus is the only one that can be the best, and so that the perfect sacrifice is not about superior human effort, but pointing to Jesus. So then, with part three, we looked at the whole law. Of course, the sacrificial system was part of the law, but we looked at the law, the Ten Commandments and all those other rules, and it says, now, does God expect us to follow those? Were those given to us to help make us to be good people? Because oftentimes we have said, well, you know, we need Jesus to get saved, but then we're supposed to be good, and we're supposed to follow this to be good. And we looked at the fact that the Bible teaches that the law cannot make you good, that the law by design aggravates your sin, but the law by design actually causes you to rebel. And that is not a flaw in the law. And I love the rhyme. We're just going to stick with that. There's not a flaw in the law. The law is perfect and righteous, but we are not. And the law is designed to prove to us that we're not. And we joked about the fact that, man, if the law would work, then all we'd ever have to do with people is just tell them the right thing to do. And they just do it. And we know that's not how it works because you tell people to do the right thing and then they're, they're even more motivated to do the wrong thing. Why? Because you are sinful, because you are broken and you need Jesus. So, so the law does not make us good. The law points out that we are bad and that we need Jesus. And that when we try to use the law to conform ourselves into goodness, it, we collapse and it collapses. And, and there's been whole churches that have tried to force people to, boy, you've got to follow all this stuff. And over time, what happens is the church collapses, all the young people usually are gone. Why? Because you get so discouraged. Because the harder you try, the more you fail. Why? Because the law 
makes your sin exceedingly sinful. It actually aggravates it. And it's supposed to bring you towards Jesus because Jesus is what you need. And so then finally last week, we looked at standing in the gap and we looked at, well, when it comes to ministry, whether you're an intercessor, whether you're a missionary, whether you're a pastor, whether you're, anytime we're doing the Lord's work, what is the pressure? Is God like hanging his whole kingdom on you? And if you mess up, God's sitting there going, boy, that went bad. Now what do I do? Is God depending on us? And we saw that God includes us. He wants to work with us out of love, that God allows us to be intercessors. He allows us to be part of his program. He does use us, but that he still holds responsibility for his program. And when he hands stuff off to us, it is an act of love. It is an act of love to participate with us as he desires to save the world, that he is on a mission to do that, and he allows us to be part of it because he loves us. So this is where we've been. This is where we've gone. And so what we've seen all the way through here is that God's character includes both his anger and his grace and mercy, and that we're seeing through the Old Testament that he fully reveals himself in this way. So we're going to wrap up today with the book of Hosea, and Andy just shared part of it in chapter 2, but we're going to look at Hosea and see how God brings us all together in the book of Hosea. Now, there's a, we, we're only going to be able to scratch the surface of Hosea today. It's a, it's a fairly lengthy book. It's not huge long, but it's more chapters than we're going to cover today. So we're going to just do a quick overview today. I encourage you to study on your own, to go back and read more and, and to dig into this further on your own as you study the Word of God. But let's start in Hosea chapter 1. And Hosea chapter 1 is fairly short, just thir- 11 verses. And if you're using the Bible app, uh, all these are in the Bible app for today's event, if you are using the Beans Corner event today on your Bible app. And in chapter 1, so let's just look at it as it sets up what the book is about with Hosea. Uh, Chapter 1, verse 1, the word of the Lord, which came to Hosea, the son of Berai, during the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and during the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of harlotry and have children of harlotry, for the land commits flagrant harlotry, forsaking the Lord. So here's a weird command. Right off the bat, he says, you're going to go get married to a wife who's going to cheat on you. Ow. That's, That's a, you know, talk about spoiler alert. Go marry a woman who will not be faithful to you. But God makes it clear. Why would he ask that? He says, because I am illustrating, I am going to try to teach you about what is happening between me and my people. Verse 3, so he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, name him Jezreel for yet a little while, and I will punish the house of Jehu for the bloodshed of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. All right, so he starts with this idea that, oops, that's chapter 2, sorry get ahead of my own notes. So first he gives the marriage. So verses two and three has the marriage and son number one. Verse six, they have a daughter, conceived again, gave him a daughter. The Lord named, said to him, name her Lo-Ruhamah, for I will no longer have compassion on the house of Israel that I should ever forgive them. And then in verse eight, they have a son. When she had weaned, uh, when she had weaned Lo-Huramah, she conceived and gave birth to a son. And the Lord said, name him lo Ame." or on me, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. 
So she has three kids. All three kids, they name them after what's going on between God and his people. If you ever see a list of biblical baby names, you know, because people are always looking for, what do we name our kids? These names are not on there. Weird, huh? But the names are to identify that, that God and his people are in, are in bad shape here because the people have been unfaithful. So that's chapter 1. Then in chapter 2, which part of that Andy read for us, God lays out his case of why this has happened. So look at chapter 2, and he starts by addressing the kids. Say to your brothers, Ami, and to your sisters, Ruhamah, contend with your mother, contend, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband, and let her put away her holotry from her face and her adultery from between her breasts, or I will strip her naked and expose her as on the day when she was born. Now, just a quick note, depending on your Bible translation, the, the justification of the margins should be different depending on your translation. So this would be all center justified as opposed to um, full justified where the, the margins are straight. And that's because this is a poem. It's like a psalm, all right? And so if it sounds a little weird, it's because it's a, it's a song or a psalm or a poem. We are in verse 2. I will also make her like a wilderness, make her like desert land, and slay her with thirst. Also, I will have no compassion on her children because they are children of harlotry. For their mother has played the harlot. She, has, she who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax and my oil and my drink. Therefore, behold, I will hedge up her way with thorns, and I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. She will pursue her lovers, but she will not overtake them, and she will seek them, but she will not find them. Then she will say, I will go back to my first husband, for it was better for me than, than, than now. For she does not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the new wine, and the oil, and lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. Therefore, I will take back my grain at harvest time and my new wine in its season. I will also take away my wool and my flax given to cover her nakedness. And, I will, and then I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one will rescue her out of my hand. I will also put an end to all her gaiety, her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all her festal assemblies. I will destroy her vines and fig trees, of which she said, These are my wages, which my lovers have given me. And I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field will devour them. I will punish her for the days of the Baals when she used to offer sacrifices to them and adorn herself with her earrings and jewelry and follow her lovers so that she forgot me, declares the Lord. Whew. That's rugged. He's upset. He is angry at her cheating. He, bring, he talks about that there's shame for both her and for the children. After all I've done, I provided for her. I gave her all this stuff, and instead she used it to chase after other gods, other men, figuratively speaking. She cheated on me. Makes an interesting thing in 6. You ever pray a hedge of protection? I'm going to pray a hedge of protection. If you notice here, that this is one of the uses of that phrase, and it's not a hedge of protection. He says in verse 6 there, Therefore, I will hedge up her way with thorns and build a wall against her so she cannot find her path. In other words, here the hedge is not a hedge of protection. It's a hedge of you ain't going nowhere. It's a hedge of you want to go here and I'm going to make it hurt. I'm going to make it hard for you to wander. 
And so sometimes when you pray the hedge of protection, you have to be careful because in here it's not a, it's not a, oh, how nice, I'm safe. It's, no, you're not safe. Your way is thorned because you're doing the wrong thing. Just a note, there's no extra charge for that. Verses 7 through 13, as we just read, is just more of the same as God is indicating his anger, his frustration over the unfaithfulness and the sin of his people. And this is, if we stop there, this is the Old Testament God that we oftentimes are used to. The God who's angry, who's, who's upset, who's wrathful, and who's doling out the punishment. But we're not done. In fact, we only made it halfway through the chapter here. And then notice what changes. And notice how it changes. Because he's just said, so I'm going to take it all away from her. I'm going to send her out into the wilderness. I'm going I'm, I'm to surround her with thorns. I'm going to yank this all away. She's going to be covered in shame. And then in verse 14, therefore, therefore, so this is taking everything that's just happened, and it's not a pivot as far as saying, oh, but, no, it's therefore, because of all this, therefore, behold, I will allure her, bring her into the wilderness and speak kindly to her. Then I will give her her vineyards from there and the valley of Achor as a door of hope. And she will sing there as in the days of her youth, as in the days when she came up from the land of Egypt. It will come about in that day, declares the Lord, that you will call me Ishi and will no longer call me Bailey. For I will remove the name of the Baals from her mouth so that they will be mentioned by their names no more. In that day I will also make a covenant with them, with the beasts of the field, the birds of the sky, and the creeping things of the ground, and I will abolish the bow and the sword and war from the land and will make them lie down in safety. I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in loving kindness and in compassion. And I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. Then you will know the Lord it will come about in that day that I will respond, declares the Lord. I will respond to the heavens, and they will respond to the earth, and the earth will respond to the grain, to the new wine and the oil, and they will respond to Jezreel. I will sow her for myself in the land. I will also have compassion on her who had not obtained compassion. And I will say to those who were not my people, you are my people. Now that's a whole different sound. And notice how he puts these two together. He promises restoration. I'm going to drive you out of the desert, and then once I get you out there, I'm going to take very good care of you and restore you. And he promises compassion and gives the big picture of that all this anger and all that was to drive them out into a place where he could save them and redeem them and care for them. And that's why it's important to get that whole picture, the whole thing. And so then we get to chapter 3, which is just five verses. And chapter 3 shows, chapter 1, 2, and 3 all have to work really closely together. Because in chapter 1, he marries her, and she's going to cheat on him. Chapter 2 gives the meaning for all this. And then chapter 3, after he says, so the end of this is I'm going to restore you. And then in chapter 3, Hosea lives this out. Then the Lord said to me, speaking to Hosea, go again, love a woman who is, who is loved by her husband, yet an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the sons of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love raisin cakes. 
So I bought her for myself for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a half of barley. And so he goes out to get his wife. Well, she is so deep into her harlotry that she's actually gone professional now and has become a sexual slave. She is now, she's got, in our parlance today, we'd say she has a pimp. She's owned. So Hosea doesn't just go back and get her back. He's got to pay for her. He's got to actually buy her back off the market, off the slave market. And so she rebelled and he pays for her to bring her home. Verse 3, then I said to her, you shall stay with me for many days. You shall not play the harlot, nor shall you have a man. So I will also be toward you. For the sons of Israel will remain for many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred pillar, and without ephod or household idols. Afterward, the sons of Israel will return and seek the Lord, their God, and David, their king, and they will come trembling to the Lord and to his goodness in the last days. So, so this is a picture, as he says, I'm buying my wife back. She now will live with me. And this will be a picture of the restoration of God's people. And so we see the whole thing as Hosea in his real life plays out what God is doing spiritually with his people and doing really with his people because they were going into captivity, were in captivity. So there's a lot there. Like I said, we are just scratching the surface. Even those three chapters, we haven't done, been able to do full justice to. There's so much here. But we wanted to get this feel of here's, here's God's picture because what are we seeing here? A couple important things. God demonstrates his anger and the need for justice. This is part of his character. There are, God's anger makes us uncomfortable. God's anger can, can upset us. It, you know, it's awkward. It feels weird. We don't like the angry God. And so sometimes people just want to leave that out. They say, well, God is just, God is just a God of love. And God is just, well, yeah, but God's ang- God has anger. God's anger is real. And you cannot eliminate that from who he is because it's part of his character. And we see that here, and God is very clear that anger is a part of him. Now, here's one of the big differences to understand. There's a difference between having anger and being an angry God. Now, all of you, if I were to say, hey, have you ever known an angry person? And most of us have met an angry person, maybe more than our share. An angry person is just generally angry, and when something comes along for them to be angry about, they were ready. And so when different things happen, they get mad because they already were mad. They just found something now to be mad about. But they're generally angry people, and you meet them, and they're just always just looking for an excuse to let the anger out because they're an angry person. And those are people that we oftentimes kind of like, sometimes we just, you know, you got to kind of keep a respectful distance because, you just you know, it's like a landmine. I don't want to step on it. It might go off. But then you know other people that sometimes get angry. And they get angry for good reason. Something goes really wrong that shouldn't go wrong, and they're angry about it. And so you would say, well, yeah, they got angry, but they, that was appropriate. That was an appropriate response. But they're not an angry person. They are not generally angry. They're not always angry, but when it's appropriate, they get angry. And you know the difference. And that is how God reveals himself. He goes, I'm not an angry God. I'm just not just, but I get angry. He says, my anger is for a moment. I have momentary anger, but it is real and it's for good reason. 
Because anger by itself is not bad. We can be angry for the wrong reasons. We can be angry in the wrong way. But anger itself is not bad. And God has anger. And here we see his anger and the need for justice. And it's important not to miss it. Because you won't know who God is if you don't know that he has anger. And so he has displayed that here. And again, it makes us uncomfortable. Because who likes anger? You know, an angry person, you, you don't... It make you feel uncomfortable. And the anger of God makes us uncomfortable. And I think that's a good thing. It should make us uncomfortable. Then God demonstrates his grace and mercy, which is also part of his character. And that's why chapter 2 is such a beautiful picture because he's angry, and then that anger leads to his grace and mercy. It leads to it, which is also part of his character. And that's why he has said, and that's how he revealed himself again and again in the Old Testament, how the prophets spoke of him. His anger is but for a moment, but his loving kindness endures forever. So he says, this is who I am. This is who I am, the creator God, the Lord of heaven and earth. I get angry at moments. And I, my loving kindness is for forever. That's his character. That's his person. And these parts of his character, he is demonstrating how these qualities work together. We have this perception that somehow, and sometimes we've said it, and maybe I've said it. If you've heard me say it, you say, all right, you said that. Well, I was wrong. That somehow his anger and his loving kindness and grace and mercy are somehow in conflict. Sometimes we speak about them as if there is a conflict within God that then the cross resolves that conflict. That is not an accurate picture. That is not a good way to look at it because it, it pictures a God that has something wrong with him. That somehow God has these competing factions that he's in tension over. But God is one God and he is, he is God in perfection and, and absoluteness. And so God does not experience inward tension. He's not going, well, I'm kind of torn in two directions. He's not. He's God. And so his anger and his loving kindness for God are not in conflict. We experience that conflict because we're really bad at anger, and we're often bad at loving kindness too. So we experience conflict between these, and so we project that onto God, but God's like, I'm not in conflict. I'm angry and really good at loving kindness. In fact, those work together. And here in Hosea 2, you see how they work together. It's clear in the text. As he says, I am angry. I'm going to drive her out. She's cheated on me. She's done all this. I'm going to strip her away. They're not even my people. And I get them way out there, and I'm going to love them back until I've made them my people again. And I am going to redeem her and put a new heart in her, and I am going to restore because that's how my anger and loving kindness work together as part of who I am. And so he does this to help us know him. He does this to help us know him, to know who he is in his entirety, because knowing the whole him is salvation. Now, hang on a minute. What? Knowing the whole him is salvation? Uh, Ira, the Bible says that the demons, you believe that God is one, you do well. The demons believe and shudder. The demons don't have salvation, but they know him. Well, what do we mean by that you need to know him for salvation? The whole of him is salvation, his anger, and his grace and mercy. 
What do I mean by you need to know all of this to know him? Because Jesus is both. Jesus shows both. Jesus is the full embodiment of God. We use the word embody figuratively, generally speaking. You know, I embody this idea. But when we say that Jesus embodies God, we actually mean that literally. Because Jesus, God himself, became God incarnate. The word incarnate means to be enfleshed. In other words, God became, took on flesh. And in him, the fullness of God dwells. Jesus is not a slice of God, a piece of God, a glimpse of God. Jesus is God. Jesus said, if you have seen me, you've seen the Father. The Father and I are the same God. We are one. No one has seen the Father any time, but His Son, He has explained Him to us. Why? Because He is God. Emmanuel, God with us. And so all that God is, is contained in Jesus. The anger and the loving kindness, grace, and mercy. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, the other thing sometimes we do is say, well, Jesus is the way to God. Jesus is not the way to God. The minute you say it that way, Jesus is the way to God, it begins to beg the question, well, are there other ways? And there are plenty of people who say, well, I know of other ways to get to God. But Jesus isn't a way to get to God. Jesus is God. When he says, you can't come to God without me. Why? Because I'm him. There is no other way around me because if you went around me, you'd be avoiding who? God. Because Jesus is God. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Not a way, but I'm not a way to God. I am the way to know God. Because if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I am God. And Jesus is God. And so he is, we have to know him. And salvation is to know Jesus, right? And so, how do we know Jesus? We have to know who God is because Jesus is both. And so, we see this in the cross and the resurrection. God is angry and love and grace and mercy. And all of this plays out in the cross. He desires salvation. He desires to resolve anger in himself. And that's Jesus. And that's why the cross is so important, because he rests on the cross. Now, the anger and the loving kindness of God both exist on the cross. We sometimes miss part of it. We are familiar with the anger of the cross. But what we usually say, and we say it correctly, is Jesus died in my place. You know, what we sing this morning, I was lost, I was in chains, the world had a hold in me. So Jesus had to die for me because I was guilty. And that is true. And that is important for us to understand. But most of us, if we've come to know Jesus, we get that. But there's two parts of it. And we're going to touch on this more in coming weeks. But there's two parts of what's going on on the cross. In the Old Testament, we had the concept of the kinsman redeemer. And the kinsman redeemer was the idea that if something happened to you, they didn't have like a police force. And so if something happened to you, if you were harmed, if you were taken advantage of, if you were abused or murdered or stolen from, your closest male relative would go to bat for you to make you whole, to restore you, we call it justice. Because if something is taken from you, you are, you are raped or you are murdered or you are uh, uh, stolen from, 
and you suffer loss of some kind, you, you matter, you have value. And so that value now has to be extracted. We call it justice. And we still operate that to this day. We understand that there needs to be a cost. And if you have ever experienced harm without justice, you know that's a really ugly thing for you. Over the last few couple of years or so, there's been an increasing awareness in our culture, expressed sometimes in incredibly, incredibly fallen ways, but at least it's an effort to realize that for a long time in, in a lot of cultures, including ours, women have been taken advantage of. And men have abused women. I was watching a TV show last night. It was just a British murder mystery, but one of the characters on there, it's, a, it's an abused was an abused wife. It wasn't even the main point of the story, but she had bruises on her because her husband was rough. And everybody just made excuses for him. Well, he's just a man of high spirits and all this stuff. Because this stuff has gone on and women have had to just suffer. And nobody's lifted a finger because, well, you know, it happens. Which is infuriating if it's someone you love that gets hurt. And you say, well, if nothing happens, well, then does it matter? Do, do, do when somebody's harmed, does it matter? Do they matter? Does their, the harm done to them matter? And God says, well, yes. And it makes him angry the same way it would make you angry if a loved one was victimized. If someone you cared about was raped or murdered or robbed, that would bother you. I would hope if it didn't bother you, that's kind of rugged, right? Like, oh, well. You'd want, if, if you love me, you should be bothered by things that hurt me. Well, who loves us more than anyone? God. So what happens when you're hurt? It makes him mad with righteous anger because he is your kinsman redeemer. And so not only is Jesus hanging there on the cross taking the anger due you, but you are also seeing the anger that is there on your behalf. If you were ever victimized or hurt and nobody seemed to care, look to the cross. Look at the intense wrath of God poured out there on the cross. You say, why is God so angry? On your behalf. He is your kinsman redeemer. And he has said, vengeance is mine. I will repay. Well, where does that vengeance go? It's got to go somewhere. And it goes on to Jesus. Because his wrath is connected and part of and in union with his love. Because if you love someone, the harm to them will cause you anger. What did Jesus say the whole law was? Treat me right and treat the people made in my image right. If you do that, you're obeying the law. Love your neighbor as yourself. When you don't do that, it causes me wrath. Why? Because I'm the defender of your neighbor. And if you're hurt, I'm angry for you. And so the cross, the Jesus' cross, is a beautiful picture of both the wrath that should have fallen on you and the wrath that should have been there for you. And Jesus perfectly pictures the entire character of God, the God who is angry and yet desires restoration. And he absorbs all of it, and he's the perfect picture of God. And that is where we find the love, the grace, the mercy, and the redemption of Jesus. We call it salvation. And that's how we can say that you need to know the whole God 
to know salvation because you need to know Jesus to know salvation.